Rest is the foundation for our collective healing. Rest disrupts and makes space for invention. Rest isn't something nice that we get to later. Rest is what we do in order to have the cognitive function required to make really good decisions and figure out how to plan the things that we care about. Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Fain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Why, hello there, and welcome back to Messy and Magnificent, or hey, maybe you're here for the first time. Either way, welcome. It's your gal, Carly, and we're doing a whole month around using rest as a productivity tool, and I got to tell you this story. So years ago, I was sitting in my home studio. I used to have this really sweet home studio when I lived in Western Massachusetts, and sometimes clients would come to do work retreats with me in the studio. And there was this young woman sitting on my sofa. She was an entrepreneur in the wellness space. She taught yoga and other similar things. And she was doing what we used to call the Berkshire Shuffle, which is this really common practice for folks who work in the wellness space, not just in the Berkshires, really anywhere, where maybe you have to be at multiple studios or you're working with private clients where you travel with them. And so it's a lot of running around throughout the day to get from one place to the next. And she hired me because she was afraid of burning out. She was aware that all of her income was dependent upon herself and she just had this fear of stretching herself too thin. And so she's describing her job to me. She's describing not wanting to burn out. And then she also starts to describe some of the symptoms she's already having. Symptoms like severe chronic migraine. She was having digestive issues, fatigue issues. She was feeling really foggy. There were days where she was having a hard time getting out of bed at all. It felt like depression was creeping in. And as she's going through this laundry list of things she's already feeling, I, I felt this thing bubbling up in me and I, I didn't want to say it for fear of offending her. And I'm pretty sure that I did when I finally said, wait, hold on one second. Just out of curiosity, how will we know when you do reach burnout? Because of having chronic migraines and feeling really foggy, having a tough time getting out of bed in the morning is already happening. What do you think burnout's going to look like? And she burst into tears. She was incredibly frustrated in that moment, and I'm sure exhausted. And she said, I don't know. I'll, I'll know when I get there. This isn't it. These are minor things. This isn't what burnout looks like. So I said, okay. And I let it be because it was clearly a tender area. And we continued to talk about her business plan and what she wanted to do moving forward. And as she was mapping out her steps, she brought up an appointment she's got with an endocrinologist because her kidneys are beginning to fail. And she mentioned how she hasn't had her period in two and a half years and some actually very serious medical symptoms were going on. And that's when I said, okay, hold on. I think we need to map out a plan that reconnects your business to your body. Because if you're in your late 20s and you're already having such severe symptoms, as she reports as a result of the amount of work that she has to put in, the amount of push that she's doing, it's time for us to begin to discern the difference between hard work and overworking. 
And you know, Oliver Berkman, he wrote for The Guardian this column that will change your life, the Protestant work ethic. And I'll put a link to that here in the show notes. But what Oliver points out in that article is that effort is one of those concepts that we don't usually really break down and unpack. Because what does it mean to put forth more effort? Oliver said, quote, when I sit down with the determination to put in some effort, I scrunch the muscles in my face and my forehead. I stare extra hard at the screen. I tense my shoulders, end quote. And this all reminds me of a line that the philosopher Alan Watts wrote. He said, quote, we're forever scratching our heads, clenching our fists and jaws, holding our breath and tightening our rectal muscles in order to will or to keep control of our feelings, end quote. This crunching of our body into a tight ball It doesn't check more items off of our to-do list, right? (laughs) But it does leave us feeling achy, exhausted, like we're chronically behind, like we're doing plenty of work. And if it's hurting, perhaps kind of like that Protestant work ethic, it must be working, right? Except for many of us, this woman being an example, and I know I have been right there in her shoes too. We're confusing effort with worry, with stress, with mounting anxiety or obsessive thoughts. I cannot tell you how often I have felt like I've worked really hard all day when really I was just having obsessive thoughts about certain projects or clients or tasks, but I wasn't really doing much with those thoughts. And in moments where that happens, my day gets full. I feel exhausted or spent at the end of it. And I feel like I've earned the right to relax because it's been so hard But really, not much progress has been made. And so then the next thing you know, it's the next day and we've got to start all over again. There's plenty to do. I don't know if any of that is related to you or not, but this certainly reminds me of what Dan Pallotta wrote in a Harvard Business Review article recently, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes here. He said, I can hunch over my computer screen for half the day churning frenetically through emails without getting much of substance done, all the while telling myself what a loser I am. I leave at 6 p.m. feeling like I put in a full day and given my level of mental fatigue, I did put in a full day, end quote. And yet most of that day wasn't necessarily productive. So this is where Pallotta kind of references this, again, this Puritan work ethic where we've got to work to earn our right maybe perhaps overworking as seen as something to model, right? It's seen as something that's productive, even when it's not. But we got to remember the flip side of this Puritan work ethic, which is that Puritans also, they burned witches at the stake, right? Like they sacrificed human beings. We need new role models. We need a new way of doing business in the world that allows it to be sustainable. So that's why this month, smack dab in the middle of summer where I live in the Northern Hemisphere, we're going to map out ways for you to have a little more rest if you're in the market for making progress in your career, your health or relationships, or just enjoying what's already going well without having to push harder. We're going to do what we often talk about at the end of every episode. We're going to make sure that you thrive through nourishment instead of punishment. This is the difference between being an amateur pretending that they know what they're doing and being a pro who's able to stay in the game of what they really care about for the long haul. So here's what we're going to cover today as we enter this month of rest. First, we've got to talk about how we got to this place where rest as seen 
as something unrelated to work or in some places as lazy or unproductive, which has never been proven to be the case. So first things first, we're going to talk about where this overworking culture comes from. It didn't happen in a vacuum. If you find yourself doing the most around the clock, there's a good chance that this was a learned behavior based on a set of beliefs that we're going to unpack here. Then we're going to talk about why rest isn't valued in Western culture. And I'm going to give some examples specifically from the U.S. where I live. Then we're going to talk about why rest, or as I like to call it, productive downtime, isn't viewed as profitable. And that viewed part is really important because it's actually not a fact. So then we're, of course, we're going to talk before we wrap up here about some recent research that's disrupting the idea that more work equals more productivity. In fact, we're seeing quite the opposite in some circles. So before we dive in, I want to pause and give a restful shout out to Kia McSwain. I have not yet had the pleasure of meeting Kia McSwain personally, but she is somebody whose work I really admire and I suggest you go check her out. She is the president of the Black Interior Designers Network, and she created this beautiful space in combination with Architectural Digest that she dedicated to Tamika Mallory, who is a nationally recognized civil rights activist and seasoned community organizer. She created this beautiful haven of a bedroom that she dedicated in honor to Tamika because she understands how important it is for us to show up for what we believe in and to create the positive shifts and change we want in the world that we must have rest in order to make that possible. In fact, Kia said two things as she gave a brief audio tour of this space. Number one, she said, and I quote, rest is the foundation for our collective healing. Oh my gosh, does that speak to me? (laughs) And number two, she said, rest disrupts and makes space for invention. There is so much science and data that backs up the awareness that in order to do creative problem solving, in order to find new solutions or create new methods for increasing wellness, prosperity, or opportunity for people, that rest isn't something nice that we get to later. Rest is what we do in order to have the cognitive function required to make really good decisions and figure out how to plan the things that we care about. And so Kia McSwain, thank you so much for modeling the importance of rest and shouting out to other women who are doing just that. So hey, if you're listening in right now, I want to give you a shout out on an upcoming episode also. So head on over to iTunes, leave a review, or you can send a quick voice memo over to Anitza, that's A-N-I-T-Z-A, at everybodythrive.com. She's our ambassador of buzz. She helps me with the podcast and we can share your actual voice in an upcoming episode. Tell me about a phrase, a word, a concept that's landed with you either in your iTunes review and I'll read it for you or in your voice memo because your goals, your thoughts, your curiosity, your voice, it matters big time. We really do rise well together. So I hope you'll consider pausing and doing one of those things right now so that I can give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. This episode is brought to you by the Boundary Academy. 
15 years of coaching thousands of women has taught me that it doesn't matter how good our plans, our intentions are, our network, or even our access to external resources. If we don't have the boundaries we need to honor what we care about, we will always struggle with a lack of time or energy or money or downright satisfaction. You see, women who have thriving, healthy careers and relationships know that boundaries aren't just something nice you get to later. There's something you practice gently now so that you have the later that you want. So you can get free access to the recording of the Boundaries Brunch we did right before the Boundary Academy opened. There's a link to it in the show notes wherever you're listening or head on over to carlyfane.com. And in this 45-minute class, you're going to learn the three mindsets that women with healthy boundaries already know and live into, plus lots of rich, candid conversation with thought leaders in the field of boundaries and women who are just getting started. There's nothing for sale in there. (laughs) Just rich content you're not going to get anywhere else. Because that hunch you're meant to be doing something meaningful and enjoyable with your life and career, it's right. I hope you'll join me and women from around the world that are making having boundaries oh so doable. All right, let's get started talking about how we got to this place where overworking and hard work are seen as the main ways to be productive in our professional culture. First things first, we're going to talk about some of the beliefs around overworking in our culture and where they've come to. And here's why this really matters. There's an equation that we often look at, S plus B equals R. And that stands for stimulus plus belief equals response. Now, I don't know about you, but way back in middle school and high school, when I was learning rudimentary physics, we talked about how there would be a stimulus and then there'd be a response. So for example, if you put a ball at the top of a hill and you balanced it there, the stimulus could be tapping the ball and the response would be that the ball would roll down the hill. And this makes complete logical sense for inanimate objects. But we humans are sentient beings. We are not inanimate objects, which means we have a mental filter of beliefs that everything runs through before we make a response. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say you were driving in your car down the road and you're on your way to an important work event and you get a flat tire. Now, if you had a belief that was going, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. I'm going to be seen as not being productive enough. You might be going into hyperdrive, panicking while you're doing your best to change your tire or scramble to call somebody else to help you. And so you're, while you're waiting by the side of the road here, your stress level would be mounting. So the stimulus is the car broke down and the belief is, if I'm late, I'm going to be in huge trouble or everything's going to fall apart or they're going to think I'm not a good enough worker, right? And so the response is increased panic, stress, anxiety. So once you get in the car and now you're blazing down the road again, you're showing up to work feeling exasperated. Now, let's say the same stimulus happens. You're on your way to this important event, you get a flat tire, and you take a breath for a moment and you look around and you think, oh my gosh, I never get a few minutes to myself like this. This never happens. This is outside of my control. Of course, I don't want to have a flat tire. Of course, I'd rather be on time. But you know what? Well, I've got to wait here for my friend to come help me change this tire or for AAA to come or for me to do this thing myself. I might as well take in the scenery. (laughs) It's not very often 
that I get to take in this kind of view on my way to work. And so you get your car back in gear, you get to the office, but you're feeling a sense of maybe a little bit more buoyancy because you got a little extra wiggle room in your day. So same stimulus, the belief was different. And so of course the response is different. And so I'm not here to tell you what beliefs to have. (laughs) And you get to have whatever beliefs you want. But what's important here is that we are aware consciously of the beliefs that we're holding. So as I throw out some of these common cultural beliefs, I want you to keep an eye out for any of them that might be relevant to you. Perhaps you've seen these beliefs crop up in the places you work or in the households you were raised in or the community or the country dynamic that you're part of. Because having these beliefs, that's not the issue, right? The issue is when they're happening unconsciously and they're not working for us. Because unconscious beliefs that push us to work harder than is productive, healthy, or sustainable gives us the opposite of what we're trying to do with all that effort we're putting in here. So let's look for a moment here at the United States. So the United States was first colonized by a lot of people with Protestant background. And there's what's known as the Protestant work ethic. This is a term coined by sociologist Max Weber, who wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And in this work, Weber describes the connection between that particular religion, work, and capital, and how these things, when combined, created the foundation for capitalism, which, of course, is the social and economic structure that we all live and work in. And so the Calvinist theory that much of the Protestant work ethic comes from is based on this founding idea from the Protestants who colonized the United States that there's a belief that there are few selected people who are predestined to be chosen for salvation from birth, meaning you're born at being already a chosen one or not. And the rest, those who aren't chosen, well, the rest were damned literally in their eyes. And so you can imagine this puts a ton of pressure on people to be looking out for any sign or inclination that they were the safe ones, that they were among the few who were selected to be in the good graces of God within that belief system. And so one material place they looked to see if they were in the good graces was material success. Did they have the wealth to live comfortably on earth? And so you can see how this notion of if you're wealthy, it means that you're one of the chosen ones, that you are predestined or that you will have more rights, not just in this time, but in the afterlife, can really begin to separate the way we view other people. This can create tremendous gaps in who we believe is worthy of making money and doing well in the world, and who conversely is here to sacrifice themselves, to bubble and toil and brew, and perhaps not make any advancement, but that that would be seen as okay. And I think about this a lot as we look at the continued gender pay gaps in the United States. So according to the American Community Survey, this is data from the last U.S. Census back in 2019, the gender pay gap in the United States was still around 19%. So this means that a woman who is at least 16 years old, working a full-time year-round job, who is part of an employed population, makes about 81% as her male counterpart does, all things being the same. So if they're 
the same age, the same experience, the same level of education, a woman is odds are making only 81% of what a man in that role would make. Now, the wage gap really varies state by state, though, and I want to point that out. So, for example, in Wyoming, the gender pay gap is 36.6%. That is the biggest wage gap in this country. So that means that the median earnings of women in the state of Wyoming is only 63% of what men earn. And on average, there are 33 states in which the gender pay gap is larger than that national average of 19%, which means in the bulk of states, most women are earning far less than men. Now, this is only compounded by, the, by race. When we look at this idea that certain classes of people, segments of population could be treated differently based on their inherent sense of worthiness, I would be remiss not to point out that black women make an average of only 68% of what white men make. This is 21% less than white women. I want to say that again, because 53% of Americans are not aware, so more than half of Americans are not aware that there is a tremendous pay gap between black and white women. So I'm going to repeat this. On average, black women make 21% less than white women for roles in which they are equally qualified, equally educated. This is what it looks like in modern day. And so we can see how this Protestant work ethic that influenced the founding of this country included a belief that the more material wealth you have, the closer you are to God. And in doing so, this creates the type of institutionalized racism that is still incredibly prevalent today. So during slavery, we could say things like, this population, right, this African-American population is going to do all the work, but they're never going to be allowed to have it pay off for them. So we can see how belief systems, some of them religious, some of them around race, have a huge impact on the way we view who gets to rest, how much rest is appropriate based on different demographics. I also want to point out as we talk about structural systems that make it difficult for there to be rest, we've got to talk about how patriarchy plays into this. Because as we had this idea that some people are chosen and they get to be in charge and everybody else works for them, the fact that men have dominated our industrialized capitalist society means that a great part of the workforce is meant to be subordinate to a ruling set of masters here. And so this is built into this abstract order of the way our market is run. So let's talk a little bit about that for a second as we go into our next topic around why rest really isn't valued in the West, specifically here in the United States. But I'll be curious, as we have listeners in at least 49 countries now, I want to know from you, is any of this cropping up where you are? Are you seeing any of, of these belief systems influencing the environment you're in too? So... As we talk about rest or productive downtime, as I prefer to call it, isn't viewed as profitable. I want to reference this great article that Eliza Sangster wrote. She wrote this in Forbes magazine. And this, like every other piece of research or article I mentioned, is there's a link to it right here in the show notes, wherever you're listening in, where you can head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast 
And you'll see all the references so that you can click into any of these and go deeper if they speak to you. But she wrote this article, Elisa Sangster, called The Patriarchy Invented the 9 to 5 Workday. Here's how we remake it with women in the room. And you can see, (laughs) of course, I was interested immediately to read the article, but she breaks down how workplaces and our financial systems were designed by men for men. And I want to be even more specific here. They were designed by men and for men during times in which there was common social structure that made sure that men didn't have as many familial or social obligations because they either lived at at home with their mother still, or they were married to a woman who would manage all of that, which meant that it was seen as two separate things. Work life was seen as totally different from personal time. And this created a huge split in the way we function out in the world, right? This idea that there should be one version of us that's at work and one version of us that is at home and that they are totally separate things when really we are all whole beings. (laughs) And so this created kind of this perfect patriarchal storm here where markets can operate for the whole of the workday And employee hours extend long beyond the opening and closing bells in that market because that's what's required in order to get it all done and have a life outside of work. And so if you are in a place where perhaps you don't have somebody at home running everything for you, if you don't have somebody who cooks all your meals and does all your cleaning and arranges your social calendar and, I don't know, takes your car to the car wash or refills your subway card or whatever it is that you need to get throughout the day, then it's easy to be feel as if you're getting pulled in many directions. And what's fascinating is that many women internalize that this sense of not having, quote, work-life balance means that they are doing something wrong. And I just want to bring that clearly to the surface. Perhaps there's nothing wrong with you if you're feeling like you can't do all the things. Perhaps there's something structurally wrong with our systems that are causing us to feel like we have to sacrifice our health or our well-being or our relationships in order to get the work done properly or vice versa. And so when we stop treating ourselves as fragments that have to function doing all these individual things as if they weren't connected, well, then we can start to build more flexibility into the ways we work. And we don't need work-life balance as much as we need work-life mojo, as we need a sense of them supporting one another. And in this way, we destigmatize the basic human need for rest and a life that refuels you outside of work. And in this way, we start to normalize, both for you, but for everyone, that prioritizing a sense of community, a sense of friendship or family or health is an acceptable approach for everybody. So that you or your coworkers, your best friends, no longer need to be the oddball for saying, hey, I actually need to take a little bit of a breather right here. So let's talk specifically about that. Let's talk about some of the research that's disrupting this idea that more work equals more productivity, that old narrative. So the following case study highlights how the patriarchy isn't really working well for anyone, men included. This is not a gender-specific awareness that we've got here. This is an article of research from the Harvard Business Review about what's really holding women back. And what they find is that in order for companies to address inequities in terms of how hard it is for women to work and earn a place at the table, 
they often have to address the long hour problems that they're having. And when I say long hour problems, I mean the expectation that we should be working more than is reasonable for any given human body. What we have found time and time again is that long hours do not raise productivity. In fact, they have been associated with decreases in performance and increase in sick leave cost, increase in having to work more hours, even though we're not bringing forth any new significant work. And what's particularly fascinating about this moment in history is we are watching women time and time again walk away from senior level positions because they refuse to sacrifice themselves in the way they watch the women before them have to do so. We have seen the fallout of divorce rates go up. We've seen the fallout of women have serious health conditions as a result of not getting the rest they needed and having to be on the clock all the time. And we know that we want a better way than that. And the way forward includes rest. And when I say rest, I mean more rest than you think is reasonable. (laughs) And I say that specifically with every high achieving woman that I work with, because the bar for rest is just set so low. I know that I, even to this day, once in a while, will judge my body thinking, oh my gosh, Carly, how could you possibly need more rest right now? You rest far more than the average person in your type of position. And yet you still feel like you need a nap or you just need to go for a walk or you need a couple hours off. What is this about? But I am aware now, having caught this thought process for years, that I'm comparing myself to such an extremely overworked population that, of course, any amount of rest can feel like too much when there's virtually none happening or what we often see happening for women is fits and starts around rest, a sense of being so depleted that we'll finally take an afternoon off or a weekend off or maybe even a week. But by the time we come back, so much work has mounted that we catch up as quickly as we can. And before we know it, we're in that loop again of exhausting ourselves, then needing to check out and then starting all over again. And this is really hard for anybody, but we find this particularly challenging for people who run their own companies because with that all in, all out, extremist type of work, there's often an all-in, all-out financial situation too, where maybe you make a bunch of money, you're able to work with your clients around the clock, and then you're so depleted that when you can't sustain that, then the finances die off so that as you do get some rest, you begin to panic, have to jump in all again at full force and repeat the cycle all over again. So I know we covered a lot here in today's episode as we talked about rest. So quick recap here. We covered where that overworking culture comes from, especially Western culture here in the United States. And then we talked about why rest isn't necessarily valued or not seen as being as profitable as it actually is. And then, of course, we talked about some of the research that's disrupting this false belief that more work equals more productivity. And so before we wrap, I want to give you an example of a way I saw this show up recently within our business. So we're hiring at Everybody Thrive, a new manager of office operations. And this is a brand new role and it's going to be a remote role. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of really qualified people. And I was talking with one person recently and it's a part-time position. And she said, hey, Carly, I'm really interested in this, but ideally I need to be working more hours than that in order to support my family. 
And I'm coming from a role where I was working around the clock, so part-time sounds great, but is there going to be any possibility for being able to work more? And I said, hold on a second. Are you interested in working more or are you interested in earning more? (laughs) Because if you're interested in earning more, let's talk about how much money you want to make. Because I don't really care how much you work as long as you're reaching certain objectives. So if we can agree to you reaching certain objectives at a higher rate, that's worth it to me. I don't care if it takes you 10 hours or 25 hours to get this work done well. I care that the work is done great. What do you care about? And this was this moment for her, this light bulb going off of, yeah, actually, I don't want to be working more hours. I've got young kids. I would love to be with them. I just want my work to be valued. And I know that I want to be in a position where I can make enough money to support my family. And so I am so thankful for the women and mentors in my life, women like Karen witzig Razel, who have taught me to begin to look at my beliefs and get clear about what it is that I value so that I can create more of that without necessarily having to work so hard. So this was the primer to kick off our month of rest. I want to give you the opportunity to look at your beliefs, see what from this episode lands with you, take that over to iTunes, leave me a review, talk to me about what's bubbling up for you as we consider the cultures that we work in and the belief systems that are here. Because it turns out when we talk about rest, I don't just mean naps or sleeping or lounging on the sofa, though I am a fan of all of those. There are actually seven types of rest, some of which you might already be doing that we might just want to turn the flame up on. So we'll cover that and a few more great things on the next episode. Remember, you thrive through nourishment, not punishment. Keep taking care of what you value, leveraging rest as the magnificent professional tool it is. And I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Messy and Magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic, life-giving community of women. I consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out, sipping tea together, making sure that all women become richer, more nourished, and able to keep on rising. So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else.